I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you could join us. On September 29th, the United States and European Union hosted the inaugural Trade and Technology Council meeting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The meeting came at a fraught time in the transatlantic relationship on the heels of the Afghanistan withdrawal and the AUK-US deal. Despite last ditch attempts from France to reschedule the meeting, the meeting proceeded as planned and the US and EU produced a joint statement on priority areas moving forward. Today, we are excited to welcome Tyson Barker and Francis Burwell back to the podcast to discuss takeaways from the inaugural TTC meeting, as well as for the greater transatlantic technology relationship. For those listeners who don't know Tyson and Francis, Tyson is the head of technology and global affairs at the German Council on Foreign Relations, or DGAP. He previously worked at Aspen, Germany, where as deputy executive director and fellow, he was responsible for the Institute's digital and transatlantic programs. Francis G. Burwell is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council and a senior director at McClarty Associates. Her work focuses on the European Union and US-EU relations, as well as a range of transatlantic economic, political, and defense issues. So welcome back to the podcast, Tyson and Francis. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Good to be back. I just wanted to jump in, Chris, and just say, especially, I mean, Tyson, um, thank you for for coming on. I mean, it's been great to get to know you. Uh, But Fran, you know, I've known you for many, many years. Uh, We were at the Atlantic Council at a time when uh, the Atlantic Council was mainly just Fran and me. (laughs) (laughs) This was before Fred Kemp, before General Jones came, and we were on our last legs. And it was Fran who... um, who told me that um, I had just come out of the Pentagon and France said, uh, so Jim, you're gonna go off to the Atlantic Treaty Association Conference in Athens, who's gonna pay for your ticket? And I said, well, the Atlantic Council. And she said, Jim, that's not how think tanks work. <laughs> you gotta come up with your own money. And Fran, that set me off on a journey um, where I'm still trying to get my own money, but it, but, uh, but Fran, it's great to have you on Brussels Sprouts. <laughs> Thanks for the memories, Jim. <laughs> Well, let's turn back to TTC. Here we go. Let's start at the very beginning here. So if you could each, you know, explain, you can divide and conquer this question if you want. What is the Trade and Technology Council? How is it structured? What's the significance of it? If we place this in the greater context of the U.S.-European tech relationship, you know, how would you couch it in that relationship? So... I can start and I'll say that um, it very much is a symbol, I think, of the commitment of the US and of the EU to have a better relationship after four rather difficult years. Something that is there and working and uh, is not just the occasional summit. Uh, because I think all the parties know that summits, although we had one in June, they don't happen all that often. Um, I think also there's a recognition that we face a lot of the same economic challenges, particularly with COVID. So there's a lot of need for building resilience into our systems. And the, the actual issues that the TTC will attempt to address Uh, do focus on resilience. They focus on challenges from non-market economies, i.e. China. Uh, And they focus on getting rid of the irritants that we have in our relationship that are often unintended. 
So when I talk to people who are participants in the various TTC working groups, one of the biggest takeaways they have is that it's a way of not doing the stupid trade disputes as opposed to those that you kind of intended because that they were part of the policy. So the TTC is actually the council itself, if you will, is five people, two EU and uh, three Americans. So Secretary Blinken, Secretary Raimondo and USTR Catherine Tai. And then um, European Commission Executive Vice President, uh, Margaret Vestager, uh, whom Donald Trump used to call the tax lady. She's in charge of digital policy uh, in the EU. And Valdis Dombrovskis, also a commissioner and vice president, uh, who is has the overall economic portfolio in the EU, but also has the trade portfolio now. So that's the council. And then the council has 10 working groups on a range of different subjects. And the idea is that after the Pittsburgh meeting at Pittsburgh, they laid out the agenda for the working groups. And at the next meeting, which is not yet settled, uh, the working groups should report back with some of their tasks done to the political principles. So that's in a nutshell how it's supposed to work. We'll have to see whether that's what happens. Tyson, I'm sure you have lots to add. Oh, I, well, you did. A, you you set the you set the stage. I mean, the, I think that that's the basis of what it is. Uh, maybe a couple of um, uh, a little more context on the on the front end. It is. A, we should add a, a European Commission initiative. Um, this is something that was hooked up actually when Donald Trump was still in office. Um, Phil Hogan, the previous uh, trade commissioner, had this idea before he left the commission and approached Washington with this idea and nobody picked it up. But when the election happened in 2020 and there was this awareness that Brussels and, and Europe generally wanted to approach Washington with an, a new deal. Um, they really saw this as the vehicle for, for organizing that new deal. And I think that uh, Brussels really sustained a, a campaign to make this the vehicle for a new type of relationship. Um, and uh, to their credit was successful and it had its first meeting. And I think that we can talk about, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly from the first meeting over the course of the podcast. But I think it's also important to say what this isn't, um, because the commission sitting here in, in Berlin and watching Brussels, there are a couple of things that the commission is at pains to emphasize that it's not. Uh, first, it is not a zombie uh, TTIP, uh, a transatlantic trade and investment partnership coming back from the freezer as uh, the previous trade commissioner said when she said, well, we're putting TTIP in the freezer. TTIP is still in the freezer. Uh, this is something different. Uh, it's not focused on investment uh, controls, uh, ISDS. It's not focused on agriculture. It's not focused on some of those issues that Fran brought up, which are uh, irritants. And I think she called them stupid. And I think some people, <laughs> trade negotiators would agree because these are not issues that are going to be settled, uh, at least not in the near, near term. It is also not, and the commission is really at pains to emphasize this, although the reality is a little more complicated, it's not an anti-China alliance. Um, the document, the joint statement that came out has a lot of code language for China. It talks about uh, civil military fusion. It talks about uh, social scoring in autocrat by autocratic governments. It talks about non-market economies. Those are all code for China, but 
the commission is really trying to keep all 27 member states on board. And there's a lot of squeamishness, particularly in the country that I'm sitting in, Germany, that this could be perceived as an anti-China tech alliance. So the commission says this is not what it, what TTC is meant to be. The third is it's not a place to negotiate Privacy Shield 2.0. And that is a tough one for tech companies in the United States to swallow. They, they have difficulty with that. But that is ostensibly being handled in a different track with a different commissioner involved, the justice commissioner. Um, and uh, there is, because that is a really uh, tricky negotiation, uh, there is a desire not to let the TTC process get bogged down with the privacy shield conversation, which is a really tough one. And the fourth thing that it's not is a place to negotiate live legislation that is currently under consideration by the European Parliament and the Council in Brussels, i.e. it is not it is not a um, place to talk about competition policy and the Digital Markets Act. Um, so those are the four nots, the four no's from Brussels, and I'll leave it there. Well, I, th those were great, uh, Fran and Tyson, uh, laying that out, because I think for most uh, people on, the, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, this was a bit of a surprise. Um, you kind of heard this, there was going to be a big meeting in Pittsburgh, and then you heard about it because of the French uh, trying to uh, derail it at the last minute. Uh, but uh, it happened, and um, I think uh, for a lot of us, we kind of woke up the next day and we saw the statement that was written. And um, for me, speaking personally, I couldn't believe all the work uh, that they had laid out for themselves, all the working groups, all the issues. And I just went, oh, my God, uh, how are the, who, who's going to, in fact, I, I emailed some friends of mine. I said, who's going to do the work here in Washington? Who are the experts on this stuff that's going to really get down and solve this stuff? Because I haven't been real impressed with, uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of rhetoric in this town about Europe and not a lot of concrete. And I was saying, I mean, I know the export, the arms export bit, uh, that working group, and I know those issues and good Lord. Um, you know, and so I, so just, but, but back on what Fran said, you know, she said that this was symbolic. And I would add to that, I would say this is also a test of the Biden administration. Um, you know, the, the Biden administration has been great on great rhetoric and speeches and America's back and up through June, at least, we're saying all the right things. And then we had Kabul and then we had AUKUS and then you had a lot of doubt uh, in capitals as well as in the Beltway here about, well, just how serious is the administration in terms of having a good uh, US-European uh, relationship. I mean, well, they might be serious, but but it doesn't seem to be much more than rhetoric. And when it comes down to something like AUKUS, its impact on not just France, but its impact on Europe as well, didn't seem to be a didn't seem to bother the administration. And now, of course, uh, after the the blowback, which seemed to have surprised the White House, they're trying to make amends. It seems like half the White House is in Europe on a on a, a tour to smooth ruffled feathers we'll see how well it goes but i think in but to me i think this is a test let's see uh how much energy and attention the administration will put on this agenda it's robust it's going to call for uh heads heads to be cracked in the pentagon when it comes to the export control stuff i mean i just uh i just think it's going to be amazing uh to see if they can make any any uh, movement at all. So I'm, I'm so for me, I look on this as a big test. Let's see if the administration can get past the rhetoric and actually 
get something done. I mean, Fran, what do you think about that? So I think that's a an interesting perspective on the on the TTC. I think for those of us who follow tech policy and trade policy, and certainly for the business community, from the time of the summit in June when this was announced, they've been kind of going like, so what's the TTC going to do? What? How much are they going to do? And I think the answer is that, yes, it is a very broad agenda. And in the statement, you will see some specific assignments. But this is not really a decision-making body. Right. This is really about sharing information, looking at mechanisms for coordination and cooperation. Um, on things like export controls, they're going to do research. They're going to try and figure out what are the technologies that they need to be a little bit more careful about. And they're going to try and do some research into the impact of export controls and things like that. It's not saying that a year from now, the US and the EU will have a joint export control regime. So no ITAR changes or third country transfer? Well, you know, it might eventually come that way out of this collaboration. But we should point out that although it's the commission on the other side of the, ta of the table, so to speak, here, it's not a negotiation really, um, it's the member states who have a lot of the control over export controls, not the commission. The commission, if they wanted to do export controls, what they would do is kind of set out um, some guidelines for the member states and encourage the member states to accept them and then uh, try and get the member states to actually implement them, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things it's designed to do on something like export controls is to prevent a situation where we go charging ahead with something and find out that the collateral damage is our European allies. So instead, let's talk about if we have a country that we're concerned about, let's talk about whether we both have instruments related to export, export control type instruments that we can use to keep sensitive technology, certain digital technologies and AI technologies, for example, out of the hands of states who would use them to surveil their citizens for nefarious means. So it's much more about coordination, information sharing rather than decision-making. On the other hand, I would say that it is a test and it's a test in a way because there have been quite a few US-EU bilateral economic dialogues that have kind of fizzled out. Absolutely. And one of the ones was the TEC, the Transatlantic Economic Council. And one of my uh, colleagues right now keeps inadvertently referring to the TTC as the tech. <laughs> so, um, but I'm sensing so far a different level of commitment, an awareness of the past kind of spotted history, right? You know, so uh, people are aware of that danger, but there is a danger that an institution or a, a, a series of conversations, a mechanism which is designed to share information, provide a space for consultation and things like that won't come up with the headline grabbing deliverables that will keep ministerial level political leaders engaged. And well, I think we don't know that yet about the TTC. Well, when when do we get to that decision-making bit? I know Tyson, I know you've got a view, uh, but just to ask a friend, I mean, 
um, I think what you laid out makes sense to me. You got to do your research first. Let's not charge off until we know what we're doing. But what's the handoff? Who gets the handoff? Just stick with export controls for arms, you know, third country transfers, things like that. Who gets the handoff after the research is done and they've identified problems? Is there a handoff made to another group that then sits down and starts writing legislation or coming up with something that um, that, that tries to actually take make make some progress in how we go about better partnering with European industry on on arms development? Who who gets that handoff? Let me put it in a slightly different topic, which is investment screening. So we have the CFIUS project pro, yeah. um, process, right? Right. And the Europeans have been setting up their own process. So will the bureaucrats in charge of investment screening on both sides of the Atlantic sit down and talk about a particular case? Right. And will they have guidelines about, since some of this is, is sensitive information, sensitive commercial as well as political information, will they have guidelines about what they can share and what they can't? Right. And how effective is it that they actually can share stuff? about this major company from a non-market economy that wants to buy up stuff in, on both sides of the Atlantic. Right. So that's where I think you're gonna see it. Tyson? Yeah, I mean, I, I my sense is that the, most of the focus, even on export controls, a lot of the export controls regimes, as you mentioned, Jim, are legacy regimes that deal with things like chemicals and nuclear technology, uh, Wassenaar, et cetera. Um, I don't know if that's where the emphasis is going to be in the TTC. I think that Fran's right when she talks about the suites of technology that we're discussing, i.e. much less capital intensive and perhaps much more civilian driven. Um, we're talking about um, artificial intelligence. We're talking about semiconductor technology. We're talking about games, mobile gaming, uh, you know, things that are now coming under the a much broader, um, a much broader scrutiny in export controls and investment screening regimes uh, in, on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that the other thing that we're going to see much more conversation on is trustworthy vendors and what we let into our spaces beyond 5G. Yeah. So even right now, we're having conversations about um, smart cameras, uh, height vision cameras, biometric screening from from uh, China, a Chinese company that makes very, very hot, uh, you know, effective uh, IE powered uh, cameras that is on an entity list in the United States, but has actually been uh, procured by governments for airport screening, for example, in Europe. So those kind of conversations are gonna be the ones that we're gonna to start to have. We're also seeing, as Fran mentioned, there are now 19 countries in Europe that have export uh, excuse me, investment screening mechanisms in place. That is the product of some nudge by the European Commission. There is a desire to create much better information sharing way stations within Europe. That has been, mm, it, it could be better, suboptimal, let's say. And there's a thirst as even the country that I'm in, in Germany, where they're staffing up majorly to handle the caseload in, inve in investment screening that they're dealing with right now, including at the at the MOD, uh, a huge desire to get uh, better, more deeper intel relationships with the United States on this front. So I think that that would be more the area, as Fran mentioned, much more in the kind of like, let's have a dashboard, let's uh, you know compare notes as opposed to let's write a new regime here. I think if you if you think about the experience with Huawei and the way that Secretary Pompeo went over and kind of bludgeoned 
the Europeans into paying attention to Huawei. Yeah. There are very real concerns, legitimate concerns about Huawei being in 5G. And I think that this, if we could roll back the tape and you had the TTC there and you had a cooperative attitude there, this is the kind of thing that would come up on the table and people would talk about and make the case about and talk about alternatives and things like that. And it would be a much smoother type of, of discussion, we hope. So, I mean, like I say, they've just started, but that's, I think that's what the ambition is to get rid of some of the tensions that you really don't need to have. Yeah. Well, that's, that is, that's really helpful. And, and Carissa, just for, just for a second, I, you know, I, I was hoping that the, this, this group would be able to help us deal with, and, and I guess there is some legacy to it, Tyson, you know, some of these stand, these problems, not necessarily Wassenaar kinds of policies, but, but more these problems we've had in uh, transatlantic defense trade between U.S. industry and um, European industry encompassed in the ITAR and U.S. prohibitions on allowing a European company to have a to, to export to a third country an item that has U.S. content without U.S. approval. You know all these things that have held us back when it comes to U.S. EU uh, defense industry cooperation or military cooperation or NATO EU. I mean, there's a lot of things that we talk about in, that we talk about today um, about Europe doing better in terms of defense capabilities where some of the problems are with the United States, where we we and the European defense industry cannot work together as efficiently because of uh, these US rules and there's European rules too. And so I was, I guess I put a lot of hope in this group <laughs> to work through those, but maybe not. But anyway, Carissa, over to you. Yeah, so we've spent a fair amount of time on the protect agenda so far in this conversation. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what jumped out at both of you as priority areas and maybe a more affirmative agenda on critical technologies moving forward. And then kind of in that same note, just writ large, did anything surprise you in the joint statement? Is there anything that you didn't expect or are there spaces that you think we should really watch moving forward that we're missing from the joint statement. Maybe I can maybe I can start on this one mm -hmm. because there's a lot of I think there's a lot to be interested in. Um, let me start with uh, the kind of industrial policy side or the supply secure supply chain side, the focus on semiconductors, which I think was key and, and very acute in the document. And I think that there are three sizes that the TTC is looking to come at the question of semiconductors at. And uh, the, the most explicit way that the joint statement talked about semiconductors is, well, we need to make sure that we're not rocking each other with uh, you know, policies that knock our supply chains on the other side of the Atlantic. We need to be comparing notes. We need to not have entity lists or, or policies that restrict access to IP that one side is producing or equipment that the other side is producing that will make sure that we have a robust and stable supply chain. So that's that's the low hanging fruit, I would say. And they grabbed that. But they also built into the, the statement, they said, but this is just the beginning. We want to look at mid and long term goals. And mm -hmm. I think that's where it gets a little more interesting, because both sides of the Atlantic are pursuing a pretty massive, let's say, industrial policy. It's a we're in a renaissance in tech industrial policy right now. 
with the CHIPS Act, you know, $52 billion uh, investing to high-end uh, chip manufacturing capabilities in the United States, and very similar considerations in Europe right now through import projects of common European interest, uh, Horizon Europe and 92 billion euro uh, research and development um, facility, uh, the Recovery and Resilience Fund, all these kind of things are going to also be pumping money into uh, things like semiconductors. So the question is, can we create transatlantic consortia, both on the R&D side and interestingly, on the manufacturing and production side that will kind of knit our economies together so that this comes kind of the, the node of strategic interdependence for the US and Europe. That, that semiconductor cooperation could be, and this is quite ambitious and maximalist, but kind of like a coal and steel community. You know, I mean, we could have a kind of digital tech community that really knits these two economies together and creates that interdependence that ties us more closely together. So that's one thing that I think is really, really useful. Let me give you one more, and I know Fran's got a couple as well. The other is on um, the global rulebook. Um, and I think that even though both sides were, especially the European side, were at pains not to say that we're actively looking at legislation that's on the table right now, uh, like platform regulation. There was a lot of talk about how do we approach questions around disinformation? How do we approach questions around transparency and algorithms? How do we approach the kind of uh, issues? And this was set prior to the revelations that came out recently in the Wall Street Journal and through the whistleblower regarding Facebook. But how do we make sure that these, what they call in Europe, a very large online platforms or VLOBs, are, are being transparent and actually implementing their terms of service by penalty of law. And that's something that Europe's really looking at. And that's something that's really interested the Biden White House. Like, how can we create voluntary codes of conduct and codes of practice on illegal content and disinformation that then can be instrumentalized or weaponized through regulation? And that is, you start to see the, the beginnings of language to look into that on, on the US side, which I think is really interesting and really has the seeds for, for great cooperation. And the last thing on the global rule book I would add is, is technical standard setting. Uh, both sides are really looking at kind of creating, let's say democratic caucuses in bodies like the ITU and the International Standards Organization. Now, the US and Europe have worked together in the ITU for maybe a hundred years or plus, you know, IT was created when the telegraph was created essentially. So, but this is to really see it in a new light, see technical standard setting in a much more geostrategic light. And that means creating greater capacity, fielding more uh, chairs for working groups, trying to get leadership elected from, from like-minded countries, and also setting uh, model standards that, that, the, that other countries can support. So I think that there's, that's, those are the areas that I would emphasize. Maybe Fran has a couple others. So I would say that um, two things that jumped out of me, out at me. Number one, um, the whole values question. So there is a working group, uh, you know, there are these 10 working groups and there's one on the misuse of technology. And I thought that this might be, you know, pretty much stay in its own lane, et cetera, and do some stuff on content moderation, et cetera. But even in the tech standards working group, you find a very strong statement about trying to avoid 
or working against the misuse of AI by authoritarian regimes. So clearly the whole values thing, it's not been put in one little bucket. It's actually diffuses across the whole Pittsburgh statement, which is quite interesting because I mean, there, there is um, an effort to set us and the Europeans apart, if you will. And in conversations um, with policymakers, I know that this is a bilateral effort first, but it there is envisioned outreach to Korea, Japan, other like-minded countries, et cetera. So, but I thought that was interesting. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I, I'm gonna be a little bit critical of what Tyson has said and differ from him in that I think it's easy to get a little bit too excited about this. Uh, I think when you talk about tech standards, yes, uh, this is a good forum for us to talk about what we might want to do in these other groups and about what standards would be good. But what they're really talking about now is collecting the data. Like how do you, how do you test AI to see whether it is trustworthy? How do you find out what the impact actually is? You know, is we've all read about these tests where um, AI has selected based on, shall we say, old gender norms or something like that. So I think that part of it is collecting the data and doing the evaluation to figure out how do we arrive at the standards we want to recommend. There is an issue that the US standard process is very much industry led. The European is not. There's not a natural you know, fit together for that. So I think it's really about trying to smooth off the rough edges between us so that when we go to the bodies that Tyson described, we don't surprise each other by being on opposite sides, but rather that we've had a pre-conversation and we're now more, we're, we're close, as close together as we can be. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would uh, say. What surprised me also was um, the French attempt at uh, derailing this. I think it was, uh, Tyson pointed out in the beginning that this was initially an EU proposal, a commission proposal to the United States. And there was some reticence by the US government to uh, accept this. Just because I think that the US government, it, you know, it takes a while to get people in positions and it was seen as somewhat risky, et cetera. Would it fizzle out like the others? We don't need another dialogue, et cetera. So um, there were some hesitations, but they finally decided this was a good thing. And, and I think they have put serious effort into it to date. Um, but if we had postponed, I fear that we would still be talking about when is the first meeting going to be, because it's very hard to get three cabinet secretaries in the same city in the same day. Um, I mean, that's just a, a real challenge, not to mention two executive vice presidents, uh, two vice presidents of the European Commission as well, um, and not in a capital city. And that was quite deliberate. They went to Pittsburgh to keep them all together um, and not let them run off to 600 of other meetings. And also to demonstrate, a, a, shall we say, a post-industrial city. Um, so I think those are the types of things that 
kind of leapt out at, at me, but I think we have a long way to go. The last thing that I'd say that was somewhat surprising to me and still going on is that they're very committed. Both sides have stated their commitment to stakeholder outreach, and yet they haven't figured out what that's going to be. And that to me is a big question because if the business community and also the NGO civil society community, they need to have input into this if it's going to work over the long term. This was the first meeting, you know, like all first meetings, it's like two weeks out, people suddenly figure out all the different things that they have to do, right, to make it actually happen. And you focus on those rather than the nice things on the side. And so I get that. Um, but I hope at the next meeting, which I hope will be in the first half of 2022, whether it's in France, whether it's in Belgium, whether it's someplace else, um, hopefully they will have figured out some stakeholder outreach. I want to pull on a thread that's a bit tangential to the TTC, but also something that Tyson had mentioned on some of the antitrust conversations and conversations around surrounding reigning in big tech. I'm curious about this just because we're having a really interesting political moment right now with the Facebook whistleblower, with the Facebook files from the Wall Street Journal. I mean, if you can pull out your crystal balls, how do you envision antitrust playing out in the United States in the next four months? Are we getting somewhat closer to a European perspective? Perhaps is, you know, this there never going to be agreement on something like this in Congress? Kind of how do you see this conversation playing out um, in the United States? In the U.S., I mean, so if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump in this, on this and then Fran, I'm sure, has some opinions. I mean, this this has to do with the difference of approach um, between the U.S. and Europe again. Um, I honestly, there in some ways, there are, I know uh, some people in Washington and, and in uh, te the tech sector, especially larger tech companies might not see it this way, but there are some ways in which the approach of Europe is a little more pragmatic um, because they're not talking about breaking up Big tech. Uh, they are. There is. There are components in the draft legislation, the Digital Markets Act, that talk about you know disaggregating lines of service and talking about what can be done, what is kind of in a gray zone, what is in the black zone, what's in the white zone, what can and cannot be done. But it's not talking about breaking up big tech. That's not the conversation. It's about creating a new relationship between uh, tech companies and regulators, the tech companies being the so-called gatekeepers. And a lot of the sticking point in between big tech and Brussels is how are gatekeepers defined? Because as of right now, they would all be US tech companies. But in the United States, we see a lot of new enforcement activity. Um, both at the state level, new considerations of what is what can be considered a common carrier in states like Ohio. Uh, we see a lot of state level uh, attorneys general looking to file cases against uh, anti-competitive behavior of some large tech companies. We see uh, action uh, at the FTC and of course at the DOJ. And a lot of this is gonna come down to frictions uh, maybe not legislative frictions, but enforcement and interpretation frictions that could ultimately land before the Supreme Court. And that means, you know, what is what authority do uh, regulators currently have on the books in the United States and how far can they push them to apply to this world, which is, is really quite new 
given the kind of authorities that the FTC has at its disposal? That's, that's going to be the big question. So in Europe, we're talking about legislation and in the United States, and maybe France sees it a little differently. Maybe I'm being a little too simplistic here because there are obviously conversations about legislation on the Hill, but I see it as more of an enforcement uh, question in the United States as opposed to a, a regulatory question in Europe. And frankly, this joint, um, this joint tech competition dialogue is meant to deal with some of these enforcement questions. And that is one of the reasons why it's been cordoned off from the TTC. This is another, sorry, sorry, Jim, another dialogue. <laughs> so even more gardening. Um, yeah. But um, but they are, are cordoned off because they're not policymakers. They're considered to be enforced. They're looking at enforcement mechanisms. So there's, for example, there's this acquisition case between NVIDIA, a major tech company in the United States, and ARM, a major uh, chip design company in the, in the UK, that the European Union and China and some other states and the UK itself are all looking at to say, is this leading to an anti-competitive anti merger. So they're launching investigations and that would be the kind of dialogue that you would have. It's more of an enforcement and investigations dialogue. So I would say that one of the things that um, the TTC kind of demonstrates or the, the lead up to it demonstrates is how focused and organized the EU is on tech policy. It's not 100% um, internal agreement between all the member states, but they have people whose day job it is, is to think about Europe for a digital age. And most European governments has a digitalization minister now. And there's conversation about having a digitalization ministry, depending upon which coalition, in Germany, depending upon which coalition comes to be reality. So for the last five years, I would say, there has been a much more concerted policy focus on digitalization and the impact of technology on, and the need to respond in some policy way in Europe than there has been in the United States. And the consequence of that is that we are really far behind in terms of thinking about the regulation of tech and what we want. And I think that it is going to prove difficult uh, for us to move forward with the Europeans, um, particularly on something as challenging as competition policy in the short term until we figure out ourselves what we want. And you know, a lot of the bills up on Capitol Hill are things like making reversing the charges so that it's not the government that pays, but it's the company that is being looked into that pays and stuff like that. Or, you know, it's maybe um, one prohibiting one type of behavior, whereas the DMA is prohibiting six types of behaviors or something like that. So I think we are really quite far behind in terms of what the Europeans are doing. On the other hand, I kind of think that the Europeans, they've gotten frustrated because they have launched competition case after competition case against companies, and it takes a long time, like any legal proceeding. And uh, despite fines, 
uh, they don't see much progress. And I, I have to say that the Wall Street Journal Facebook um, expose kind of shows where the challenges are. Um, but that doesn't mean, but now, so now Europe has jumped ahead and decided to prescribe certain behaviors for certain companies, only a very small number of companies, um, if they pass the DMA in its current form. And I think it's going to be really challenging on the day that the DMA passes and then there's a review of who is actually a gatekeeper. And if it turns out to be all American companies, I think that's going to be a real challenge politically. Um, at the same time, there's no doubt that with this administration, competition policy, not just in digital, but if you look at the competition executive order, it's also about railroads and farming and all sorts of industrial sectors. Competition policy is a much bigger thing than it has been for a long time. So we'll, we'll have to see whether the United States can figure out what it wants and what it wants to do vis-a-vis -vis these companies and what it's able to do. And then, then we can talk about the dysfunctionality of Congress and whether we can get anything done. So well, on, on that point, let me, oh, Tyson, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to even draw that point even further out. So Fran was talking about what does the Biden administration want on antitrust questions around you know, the digital power of online platforms. But the same could be said for its approach to artificial intelligence. Absolutely. The same Absolutely. could be said for its approach to platform governance writ large. The same could be said for its approach to content moderation. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, Europe as a, let's say an enthusiastic partner in, in this regulatory space <laughs> is asking, what does the Biden administration really want on these major tech questions? Because they weren't articulated during the campaign Right. And so they're starting to get personnel in place, as was mentioned, uh, both at the White House and some of the regulators and, of course, the the uh, departments. But they're still they're they're still waiting. But the patience is starting to wear a little thin to the extent that people are saying, OK, we got it. We got to get going. We got to go ahead and move because we can't really wait any longer. Yeah, I, I wanted to. Oh, please. Sorry. I was just going to say on the topic of not waiting. I mean, this is why. There are obviously discussions in the TTC. There were discussions in Pittsburgh about the Digital Markets Act, um, but the EU is not gonna wait for the United States to get its act together um, before it goes ahead with its own legislation. If it thinks that legislation is justified, it's gonna go right ahead and do it. So, you know, that's, that's why it's important for us to get our act together quicker. Well, well well, let me ask then, along those lines, um, what do you think happens to this group and all this work if the Republicans take the Congress in the midterms or at the presidential election, the Republicans take the White House? What happens, the Republican Party, not as it used to be, but it is to, as it is today, what happens to this whole, all this work and all this good intent and all this stuff that we know needs to be done and it's me hard and that will work will have been done if the Republicans take the Congress uh, and or they take the White House, what happens to all this stuff? Um, so let me let me 
turn that slightly and say that when I look at Washington and what it's trying to do globally, I see a, a global China containment strategy around the geopolitical dimensions of technology mm -hmm. with the TTC as the Atlantic bridge and the quad as the Pacific bridge. And there's a lot of efforts around that to create a uh, tech governance space with investment screening, export controls, trustworthy vendors, data flows, that kind of stuff. The, in the industrial policy piece is there, the critical technology R&D piece is there. We're seeing growth in discussion around um, uh, education and the, the flow of, of talented workforce. Um, all these kind of questions, the, the rule book, the technical standards, all this stuff is getting that geopolitical edge with the Quad and the TTC. That's on the tech front. The Obama administration had a very similar containment strategy built on geoeconomics. With, the, with TTIP on the Atlantic and TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership on the Pacific side, looking to do something very similar, which is we're gonna kind of contain China's uh, abuse of the current order uh, by creating a, a system where we're really central to the, the, the system that's governing. And, uh, you know, when, the Trump administration came into office, that was all off the table, it collapsed. And now we have a situation where uh, where China is looking to ascend to the successor agreement to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one that the Obama administration itself negotiated. There's an irony. Yeah. So um, although I think that there would be space, and Fran, correct me if you see this differently, for cooperation with the Republican Congress, on um, TTC questions, um, primarily because we are still talking about information sharing mm -hmm. and you know this beginning of just socializing relationships and gardening. Um, I, I don't see a Republican administration in, <laughs> uh, this is probably the understatement of the year. I don't see a Republican administration investing in this exercise as a priority. Yeah. Well, I agree with that, unfortunately. Um, I think that if the Republicans were to take over Congress, then you would see something that probably would have, is going to be the way anyway, which is that the TTC is gonna focus on things that can be pursued through executive action. Right. Not, not requiring congressional. I mean, it, I, someone pointed out to me today, we don't have trade promotion authority and the commission doesn't have a mandate from parliament and, and the member states to negotiate anything. This is not, as I think Tyson said in the beginning, this is not TTIP. It's not even a teeny, tiny, tiny TTIP. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's about things that largely are about coordinating our positions and in multilateral institutions and doing things that can be done by executive action that aren't groundbreaking or anything like that, but taking care of each other's needs more closely. You don't need Congress for that most of the time. It would be great if Congress is involved. And one of the interesting questions is how the European Parliament and Congress will get involved in the TTC. Uh, very much undetermined, probably something through the transatlantic legislators dialogue, which has been, you know, it kind of some days it's working well and other days they can't even figure out when they want to meet or what they want to talk about. So, you know, that in itself is an, another one of those dialogues that has sometimes fallen on hard times. 
the experience of the Trump administration was that there was absolutely no discussion of tech policy, really, except for content moderation in the sense of were the companies censoring supporters of President Trump and President Trump himself. So if the white, if Republicans come back into governance in the current form that we see the party, then I can see some movement on the content moderation side, but I don't know if we're going to be able to reach agreement yeah, on, yeah. on that. Yeah. But one of my arguments right now is that the US government, the administration needs to think about how to organize itself for this digital world. It needs to think about who is responsible? Who is our digitalization minister? Is it also the congressman, commerce secretary? I'm not sure that's exactly right. Um, that's why we have three co-chairs in the TTC. And, but even when you go to the different departments, you find kind of uh, tech stuff is kind of stuck over here and in this corner over here, over there, there's not anyone who's kind of saying, we all have to, uh, get together on this. A European asked me the other day, who in the White House coordinates the digitalization of government services across the country? And I had to say, well, first off, the states do that or the localities do that. And then you're talking about a government where we had a major hack of the Office of Personnel Management because the computers are so old, they couldn't run antivirus software. So, you know, we are just not in the same ballpark as many of the European countries. So, and, and as the commission, and I think we have to start thinking about that. And I hope the Biden administration will do that. And I hope the TTC will push the Biden administration. Well, because they have to make up their policies and make up their minds before the next meeting on some things, that can sometimes be an action forcing event in terms of how the bureaucracy has to think about what it needs to do. And they had better hurry so that we can capture at least some of the progress that, that maybe this will bring about, because uh, you know there's no time to lose. Uh, you know the, the midterms are right around the corner, and and uh, but like you said, maybe with con with a, even a Republican Congress, there's there's some things, and it's executive director uh, directives anyway. But uh, anyway, but still, I think there's a good reason to hurry. Over to you, Carissa. Yes, yeah, so a final question on that note of we need to hurry as you look to the next couple of months as the working groups begin meeting across those 10 working groups, what do you see as the low hanging fruit in those groups, what do you think that will be the first or second thing that those groups do when they begin meeting and it can be across any of them. I think we're still in the phase of trying to identify what those are. So I think that the low hanging fruit, there might be something on semiconductors, but I'm actually a little bit skeptical of that because I think that the commission, Thierry Breton, the commissioner in charge of semiconductors is trying to get his, they're trying to get their semiconductor um, uh, effort underway. And I think they wanna have that first. I think there will be some uh, AI definitions. What is trustworthy AI? I think there will be some identification of technologies that need to be included in the TTC discussions and things like that. Um, there is a WTO ministerial coming up. I think it's probably too soon for the Global Trade Challenges Working Group to really get its 
itself together with anything comprehensive on WTO reform. Again, this is an area where the US policy is unclear. Um, so I think that the next six months, it's gonna be, I won't say treading water, but it's gonna be further defining the scope rather than coming up with three things that we can sign off in on at the next meeting. Uh, it'll be closer to that, but I'm not sure that that we'll actually have things deliverables to sign off on. Tyson may be more optimistic. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm a little worried because um, I think that the, as you rightly pointed out, the interest of principles at that level requires uh, that we that the the line starts to can't be asymptotic. That at some point we need to really cross the barrier and have actual concrete deliverables. I agree on the the idea of information sharing and definitions. Uh, you know, definitions of critical inf uh, critical technologies that can be included, maybe even criteria in, in, in investment screening. Uh, there is going to be a stakeholder uh, outreach meeting on the dual use export controls working group on October 27th. Uh, be there or be square. Um, the, you know, I think that there could be some work on, um, you know, similar to what has happened in the G7 uh, to make sure that efforts to uh, promote trustworthy vendors in infrastructure projects in the global south through our development assistance is optimized and coordinated. Um, I think that will also be a priority for the German G7 presidency in 2022. So I think that that is something that we can see. But I think we we do need to take this, this opportunity because it might be the last to be ambitious and to really uh, you know go for broke. Um, there are a lot of areas that are coming upcoming, uh, industrial data, cloud and edge uh, computing regulation, um, free flow of industrial data also to China, which sees it as a strategic asset and has data localization requirements for non-personally identifiable information, um, quantum computing, that we should really try to get now and start to think about what is the governance structures we want to have in place that shape the world we want to live in. Um, rather than as you know has been mentioned, you know, fighting over battles that have already kind of calcified. Um, but I think that if we don't go into the second meeting, if the second meeting has a throat clearing joint statement, where this this joint statement which was seven pages long, had th uh, five annexes, it was, quite good actually, uh, but essentially it was throat clearing. Um, it was, we agreed to, to work together to uh, talk about, we can't have a second one of those. So, and I think that the the French presidency of the EU is coming up. France is going to be going into a an election cycle. Um, if we can get French interest and buy-in and German interest and buy-in, and both of those are big ifs, because they're not quite as solid as one would hope also the Germans, um, then we could think about some kind of joint industrial policy that could yield dividends to some of France's strategic priorities, including on semiconductors. And I can't personally think of a better kind of symbol than a second TTC that talks about deepening that industrial relationship on semiconductors in France, which has the semiconductor production idea as such a a strategic project that they want to pursue. Uh, that's a big. That's a big idea. Um, but you know, let's go for big ideas because otherwise, you know, we, we might be running on borrowed time. So I would just add to that. Even though there are some serious disputes between the U.S. and the EU that have been run parallel 
through the TTC, and particularly data transfers, the post-SHREMS privacy shield uh, issue, and um, steel and aluminum tariffs. They have not been in the TTC, although I'm sure they were discussed in the political when the political principles got together. But I think if we have those moving significantly or even at a resolution by the time of the next TTC, it will provide an overall atmosphere that gives the TTC a little bit more flexibility. And I think that's a realistic possibility if we're talking about spring 2022. So um, my fingers are crossed for those two things to give the TTC time to really get its feet on the ground and to start working in the directions that Tyson's outlined. Brianne, Tyson, thank you to both of you for joining us again on the podcast. We covered an immense amount of ground. I can't think of two better people to walk us through takeaways from that first meeting and to help us, you know, expectation manage what to expect from the next couple of working group meetings moving forward and then a second TTC meeting um, likely in the spring or early part of 2022. So thank you again to both of you for joining us on the podcast yet again. Thank you. Good to Thanks be for here. having us. Great to see you all. Thank you so much. Thanks.